listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. Me, Edward Gomez. Right then, we'll start off with some spaceflight news. The Orion rocket, which is NASA's next big launch vehicle. It's basically reinventing the Saturn V from the era of Apollo. Um, they've been, uh, well, reinventing that essentially with modern technology and uh, testing. Yeah, well, they've been reinventing it for about 10 years. Uh, it's been a long time coming. And uh, I think the first test burn they had was five years ago. Um, and it went up into low Earth orbit and uh, and everyone was very happy. And then five years have passed and they had a, a big list of snags. Uh, so they've done a 12-minute burn on the engine and uh, which is three times longer, I think, than the the initial burn. Uh, so it shows that this engine, this rocket, will will survive that long. Uh, it will give consistent amount of burn, so you can get a good amount of lift, uh, and you can get uh, a, a good distance out from the Earth. And the the interesting thing about this rocket, and the reason that I'm quite excited about it, is because. Like you said, Chris, it is a Saturn V, essentially, and Saturn V is what took people to the moon. Mm-hmm. And one of the this one of the, the purposes of this uh, this uh, delivery system is to take people to a new space station. Uh, don't worry, governments haven't been lying to you. There isn't mm-hmm. this space station is theoretical at the moment, uh, but it's a space station uh, that will be placed in orbit around the moon, and it will be used as a gateway to explore the rest of the solar system. Um, uh, which is a fantastically science fiction exciting possibility Mm. and I really really like that we have a very small piece of that has just happened Mm. and one day you know we could we could start people exploring the solar system and so the 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 Saturn V back in the 60s and 70s after the Apollo missions to the moon they redeveloped that to launch things like Skylab which is a big space station so they took out all the bits of the lunar lander in and and the, the, the capsule, the command capsule with people in at the top and replace that with this big space station, much bigger space station, just into Earth orbit. So this is an extension of that, essentially taking a space station to uh, to moon orbit, I, I guess. And as yeah. you say, that, that is useful for exploring stuff. Not not so much for getting down to the moon, but it is useful. And it, it's all due to, it's due to gravity, right? If you can get stuff to the moon, which is relatively straightforward, and then refuel or do something getting further out from that is much easier than launching even from earth orbit yeah um just because the moon's gravity is one sixth that of yeah the, exactly the and getting getting through the earth's atmosphere as well is a is a massive amount of fuel so the idea is i guess if you wanted to send something big out of the solar system you could send up little bits to this space station this gateway around the moon assemble something bigger there with robots or with people uh, doing the assembly and then launch something bigger than is feasible to get out of the atmosphere it could be even a space telescope i suppose you can yeah. assemble that there which would be yeah and particularly there's a lot of if if you think that it's very expensive to send one big rocket but it's getting cheaper and cheaper to send many small rockets sending parts for a big mm. thing up into space assembling in it and then flying it uh it's like the uh what's the 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 space the dock or the space shipyard called in Star Trek, Utopia Planitia. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. that idea that in Star Trek, you, you assemble this thing, you can't assemble it on Earth. You assemble it where gravity is uh, is negligible so that you, uh, you, you're you saving a lot of energy. Mm. 
And then there are plans that the, if you want to do, say, missions to the Mars, there are plans to do other things like take space stations or, or bases or something around either in Mars, Mars orbit or possibly on Mars's moons, Phobos and Deimos, for the same reason that getting to those is one thing you can do and then you can drop smaller bits down to the Martian surface um, or maybe it, it, take stuff there and then just drop it down later and you can do sample returns that way, get stuff out off, of, off Mars with one rocket and then have another rocket on one of Mars's moons to get it back here. So you end up with these... These bases, these well, gateways is often often the word that's used just for these these gravity yeah. sa- saving. Uh, and, and quite unlike the International Space Station, which is that is the end point. Really, mm. it doesn't really do anything else other than you send people to it. They do some experiments and they come back down. Whereas this would be a staging post. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a very exciting uh, exciting prospect. So that's something that, that NASA are doing. We've also got the Chinese Space Agency are planning their uh, next space station. They're developing their own plans for space stations in Earth orbit, also moon bases and landing people on the moon and, and so on. NASA have announced the plans to launch the first well, this is the first woman on the moon, because, of course, all the Apollo astronauts were, were men back in the 60s and 70s, um, but a new generation of people walking on the moon and doing science there, which could be uh, very um, very exciting. Um, doing science on the moon. Doing well, yes, actually, it's true. I'm not sure what they're talking about doing science, but uh, I think they, they they plan just to launch people to plant some more flags initially, I guess. But uh, to do that near the uh, the lunar south pole, which is an interesting region because you've got permanently shadowed craters. There might be ice there. That's good for getting more fuel uh, and that kind of thing. So that's that's uh, government agencies. What about? Um, private industry so for example spacex is the one that's in the news a lot but you've also got um is it blue origin and other companies boeing and so on developing their own rockets but spacex seems to be leading the field in big rockets they've got their falcon heavy which famously launched a tesla car into space um but they're developing other stuff as well yeah there's uh the the elon musk has called his uh big shiny 1950s rocket uh, Starship, and uh, that's going to be slapped onto what looks like a very long uh, toilet roll tube yeah. that's called Super Heavy. And uh, this is potentially a commercial way of launching people beyond low Earth orbit. Uh, now, there's an artist concept which looks very shiny, mm-hmm. and the reality has actually turned into something that looks almost identical. Um, it's done a very short hop when it didn't look quite so shiny, of around 20 metres. And now it's going to try doing a a much larger hop, 200 metres. It's not very much. It's Mm. not enough to get you uh, off the Earth, but it's significant. And bear in mind that this this company has uh, managed to send rockets up and then return them to the same staging platform. So I actually have no doubt that they'll be able to have the this enormous rocket that's strapped onto the bottom of it and, and actually launch people and start the age of space tourism. Mm. And, and then private industry can take more risks than government agencies can, uh, financially as well as probably, not. I'm not suggesting they take health and safety risks, but then if space travel is dangerous, um, we've already had people die in space accidents, space shuttles and, and, and rocket launchers and so on. Um, private industry is more resilient to that kind of thing than government agencies, which would have a tendency just to stop all funding and, and, and then cancel things. That's yeah, that's right. So. Particularly if it, they're led by a, an eccentric billionaire. Yes, <laughs> quite. I'm, I can't think who you're talking about. <laughs> so that's spaceflight. Um, 
Let's move on uh, out to do some you know, astronomy and space science out in the solar system. We'll start off in our, in our solar system with, um, with Europa and um, uh, hair bleach, peroxide. Uh, on on Europa, so this is something that um, I first, I spotted because it was on Twitter. Um, uh, uh, astronomer called Mike Brown, um, who goes by the Twitter alias of Pluto Killer, because he helped demote Pluto. Um, there's a, a paper that he's been involved in with with some uh, some students looking for peroxide, which is hydrogen and oxygen on Europa, um, and that's that's interesting because it sort of shouldn't be there. Yeah, it's quite unstable. Um, and uh, it's also good because... So it's good in two ways. Uh, it's unstable. Uh, so the fact that it you can detect it means that it has to have become stable. So there needs to be something to balance it to make it more stable. And that is carbon dioxide. And um, and so that's, that's a, a useful biomarker. Um, something that you... So biomarkers are things that you look for when you can't look for life. You look for the things that... Uh, you would need for life to be sustained. So carbon dioxide is a good one. Um, hydrogen, hydrogen peroxide is also very useful because it will ox- it will um, dissociate um, water and you'll get oxygen in the water. So it'll allow your, your water to be oxygenated. So if you had fish or mm. other marine life on Europa, and because that's one of the things that we think is that Europa has big seas and lakes underneath its ice, then you've got things for them to breathe. And as we we assume that life elsewhere will be similar to life on the Earth, so uh, we want things to be uh, able to breathe mm. and in a way that we know about. And so uh, having peroxide is, is actually great for those two reasons. And, and the, this paper so it was led by um, uh, a grad student called Samantha Trombo, and um, one of the things that they, they've determined is that this carbon dioxide, they, or sorry, this peroxide, which I think is stabilised by carbon dioxide, is um, predominantly around the equatorial regions and tends to be around something called chaos terrain, which is this terrain, this this grand, this icy areas on on Europa that are very jumbled and thought to be areas where it's being cracked and opened and replenished by the surface breaking and so on, like ice flows on the Earth, which implies that there's water coming up from beneath. And if that water's bringing carbon dioxide, it means you have, as you said, you've got these carbon-rich things down maybe at the base of the, uh, at the base of the ocean. So it's very, a very promising sign. As you say, biomarkers, not that this is the byproduct of life, so this is not showing that there could be life there, but it's showing that the conditions are right, that life could be there. Yeah. So there have been some in- intriguing hints uh, on Europa taken from, uh, from Earth with um, uh, potential plumes coming from the surface. So this is reminiscent of one of Saturn's moons, Enceladus, which Cassini flew by and saw these these fissures and vents. Um, that's another really interesting sign of there could be, well, there is presumably water under the surface. But yeah. to have plumes from the surface implies that water vapour is getting out somehow, um, which is uh, exciting. Yeah, and there must be some process that's actually pushing the water mm. out, like some sort of smokers or, mm. I don't mean cigarette smokers in yeah. like underwater um, hydrothermal, hy- vents, hydrothermal yeah. vents yeah and so the fact we see this in Europa we see this on Enceladus on Saturn's moon and other stuff then maybe this this is uh, possibly promising that, that we can um, uh, that we should go and find out more there are plans for missions to go and look at Jupiter's moons uh, a Europa Clipper NASA mission which is going to maybe land on Europa potentially uh, so hopefully we'll find out more in coming well decades I thought it's going to take a while to build these things uh, and get there 
So that's uh, Europa, that's in our solar system. What about other solar systems? We had the first big tranche of results from uh, a satellite called TESS, which is a survey satellite looking for transiting exoplanets, so planets going in front of their star. Um, it's a successor in some ways to the Kepler spacecraft, which came to the end of its mission last year. It can look at slightly brighter stars, which means it can potentially look at closer stars. Um, it's found quite a lot. We now have a total number of exoplanets of over 4,000 confirmed exoplanets. It's got a lot of candidates. Um, three of them were interesting because they were spanning, or three in the same solar system were interesting because they were spanning what's, what's now thought to be a, a mass gap in, in exoplanet masses and sizes, rather. Yeah, so there's... Uh... If you if you were to on a graph put all the different sizes and masses of exoplanets, there was a gap uh, with ones around Earth size and uh, between around Earth size and around Neptune size. Yeah, so about twice the size of the Earth was where there was this not many planets of that size. Yeah, and it's it's quite odd because you've got four thousand, and you'd think that actually there should be just planets with all shapes and sizes, mm. and possibly not all shapes yeah. <laughs> they're all going to be round um but all all sizes and all masses and uh there was this this gap and these uh this solar system or this extrasolar system has been found which appear to have planets that fill that gap it's interesting because a few years ago we'd found predominantly hot jupiters so very massive planets the mass of jupiter and bigger very very close to their stars so very hot in in temperature because they were so close to their star and that was a selection effect. That was because they were the easier ones to find, and our methods were good at finding those. And gradually we got better and better, and we found things that were mass of Neptune and then the mass of Earth. We thought for a while that there, were, there was a gap that there weren't many lighter planets, and then we filled that by our detection methods getting bigger. But this does seem, because we've found smaller planets than this mass gap and bigger planets, it does seem to be a genuine gap. There are theories as to why it's there due to the way planets form, although those are only mostly from computer models at the moment due to the, the light from the star. Um, so finding more planets in that gap is going to be interesting, and we'll really see whether it is a real gap or whether it was just a, a fluke that there weren't many found there. Yeah, studying this extrasolar planetary system will help us to understand if this is a genuine gap or if this is just uh, a, a problem in the way that we go about detecting and discovering these exoplanets, which is quite dominated by, in the case of TESS, it's doing transit, so it's looking for eclipses of the, the, the host star by these exoplanets. As you said, Chris, uh, the exoplanets that we originally found were very massive and very close to the star because they were those were the easier ones to find. And it may just be that where, as we enter this era of higher sensitivity instruments, we may be able to fill that gap out. They're talking about Earth-like planets as well. These are some of these planets they're finding are in what's called the habitable zone, where they could have liquid water on the surface, but that's so dependent on the atmosphere and the conditions on the surface. We still can't really say anything about whether these are truly Earth-like in the sense they have seas and oceans and potentially forests and all that kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. Um, it's future missions like ESA's aerial mission and so on that are going to characterise planets in much more detail. So we need to wait for, for more stuff. Uh, on that you can normally tell whether a planet is rocky or yeah. whether it's a gas planet though and uh, and and that's a start mm. um, you can tell whether it's a massive rocky planet or a massive gas planet and that's from its density so if you have its mass and its size its volume essentially from there are other methods that give you its mass this transit method gives you its size you can get its average density that's which right gives us, gives us a hint um, we don't, I guess we don't get that in all places. And there were some really intriguing things people have done with um, 
when we see them just with transit, so you only see their radius, they've then been looking at the details and exactly when the transit times are, because the, if there's multiple planets, they interfere with each other a little bit and they slightly adjust their own orbits. And by looking at the timing of the transits very, very precisely, you can determine the mass the planets must be to have that kind of effect on each other. Really, really precise stuff. Uh, to do that with the, the data they've got is astonishing. And of course, I, I, the data is on, on Zooniverse, so planethunters.org. You can go and look at this data and try and find exoplanets uh, yourself. Anyone can um, volunteer to go and try and find this data, so it's something anyone can get involved in. Moving, um, moving slightly away, away from uh, planets and stars to, um, to black holes. Everyone loves a black hole. Um, uh, one of the, uh, uh, well, the biggest black hole in our local uh, vicinity uh, is, is the one in the centre of the galaxy, um, called Sagittarius A star, because it's in the constellation of Sagittarius. Uh, and it was, it was originally seen in, in radio emission. Um, it, uh, I guess it looks like it just burped. Yeah, or had a picnic. Yeah. Um, that it got 75 times brighter than normal um, over a few hours, and that's quite unusual, really. Uh, so it looked like it just gobbled something up, or it did a burp, or mm. something passed a bit too close to it. Now, you can't see the surface of a black hole because it's black, um, so you're really looking at some interaction between the black hole and something else. And uh, and so it's more likely to be that something went in and when it w was getting squashed on its way in, it emitted uh, lots mm. of light. There was an interesting um, time a few years ago when there was a, a, a gas cloud that was called G2 um, that passed very, very close to the black hole. We saw it in advance that it appeared to be passing close. And the prediction was that as it passed close, there was stuff, gas going to be ripped off and this, this black hole would have a feast and the, the heated up material, as you say, would get stripped off and give out lots of light, invisible, in infrared, in x-rays. and all. We'd see a bright show from around the black hole and basically saw nothing. Um, <laughs> there were lots of theories then about maybe there was um, something in the centre of the gas cloud that was giving it extra gravitational attraction, some a protostar or protoplanet or something that was keeping stuff a bit more tied in. But perhaps some of that stuff just took longer to fall into the black hole. And it's taken it a few years to get to this stage. Unfortunately, um, the centre of our galaxy is in a place in the sky that our sun passes by over the winter months. And this, these observations were taken back in May. Um, and uh, the brightest it was at the start of the observation. So it might have been brighter than that in advance. We don't, we don't really know. Um, that's about the earliest you can start to see it because of where the sun is in the sky um, as, as the Earth orbits the sun. Um, so viewing this black hole is tricky and in the next few months it's the same is going to happen again. The sun is going to pass through that part of the sky from our point of view and we won't be able to observe the black hole until next spring uh, essentially. So it's, it's a difficult kind of thing to, um, to observe but one that I suspect there's a lot of people right now looking at the black hole just in case this, this happens again. Yeah, it is a huge problem that we have being on Earth is that the sun gets in the way Unless you're a solar physicist, I guess. But, yeah. Um, the sun gets in the way uh, quite a lot. And that's something that a lot of people forget about, is that uh, you can't observe things that are directly behind the sun relative to the Earth. So potentially more gobbling from the black hole uh, over uh, coming months. We'll have to wait and see if there's uh, any more stories come out uh, on that. 
Uh, going to slightly larger scale, so the black hole is in the centre of our galaxy. Our galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. It's a flat squashed disc. To steal a phrase from Patrick Moore, um, it's two fried eggs clapped back to back. It's got a bulge in the middle, um, but it's got this thin flat disc around it, um, which is something like about 1,000 light years what, uh, thick. So compared with 100,000 light years across and 1,000 light years thick, it's quite thin. And it flares a bit at the edge gets a bit broader right out towards the outer edges. Um, but some latest results have shown, um, in more detail than we've seen before, that it's it's a bit twisted, it's a bit warped. Yeah, it's uh, it looks like it's um, sort of an S-shape, if you're mm. looking, looking at it edge-on, uh, which, is, which is a little bit strange. Nobody really understands why. Uh, the study that found this was looking at... Uh, a particular type of variable star called CFID variables. And uh, these are relatively young, they're sort of 200 million years old, uh, which is far younger than the sun is. Um, and the way that they... It's also very difficult to do this type of study because we're sitting in mm. with all the other stars. So um, it's, uh, it, it's very difficult for us to see because we're not outside of the Milky Way, nor can we ever go outside the, of the Milky Way. The advantage of CFIDs is that they're a particular type of star that we can measure their distance quite accurately through various methods. So That's we can actually right, make yeah. this 3D map of the galaxy using these particular CFID variable stars. Yeah, and it's one of the very standard ways that, in, that astronomers use to, to find distances. Um, they're, they're very, very good in galaxies, in, in our galaxy, for finding, uh, for finding distances to things. If you can find a, a CFID next to the phenomenon, you can find the distance very, very easily. And that's to do with its regular variability and brightness. Lots of these CFIDs were mapped all, uh, all around the, the Milky Way, and it seems that they're bunched up in particular places, which is uh, not what we would have expected. You sort of expect stars to form in groups and in clumps, so maybe it's to do with where the spiral, where it looks to be where the spiral arms are that, that these stars have formed. As you said, they're very young, and they do tend to show up along the edges of spiral arms, which are there because that's where bright young stars are. Um, in terms of why why the disk, when you map it with CFIDs, appears warped, there are several possible theories. Um, one is that um, it could be an external influence. It could be a nearby small galaxy, or possibly the, fact that the effect of... Uh, nearby larger galaxies, Andromeda and so on, that of course this slight gravitational sh um, shear, if you like, just this, this slight gravitational shift at the edges to twist the disk a little bit. Maybe there's, a, there's another small galaxy on an orbit that causes it to be pulled up on one side and down on the other, perhaps. And out near the edges, the gravitational pull of the rest of the galaxy in the centre is, is much weaker, so it's more susceptible to being twisted. It could also be just that it's almost internally self-propagating because there's a bunch of stars which happen to be on orbits that were a bit tilted and that's pulled all the other stars onto these tilted orbits as well. So it, it could be a sort of a self-fulfilling you know, cycle of, of star orbits. Lots of different reasons it, it could be. Um, but we'll, uh, uh, yeah, more, more studies needed, I guess, to find out more. And CFIDs are easy to spot on our side of the galaxy. To spot them on the other side past the galactic centre is, is much, much, much more difficult. So the mapping on that side is, is much harder. Um, we see other galaxies warped as well. There's some amazing images online of, 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 from various telescopes of warped galaxies. So it's not unique to the Milky Way. 
but the reason could be who knows. Yeah, it's uh, normally warping of galaxies is because they've interacted with another galaxy, mm. so they either crashed into another galaxy or, or one has passed very very close, mm. or even uh, that two galaxies have merged into a, a bigger galaxy. Yeah, lots of lots of possible reasons. So maybe 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 there'll be more mapping uh, to come. So lots happened this month from space flight out to moons of Jupiter, exoplanets and black holes belching, not to mention a warped galaxy. That's it for this month. Don't forget you can find past episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk. Until next month, goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. <laughs>